For December 7th, 2009, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 75. No cake, but what we make. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From America's best coast, I am your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel to present you a podcast that contains nothing about Tiger Woods, except the disclaimer that he will not be a topic of discussion on tonight's podcast. Isn't that refreshing? Aren't you glad, though? Haven't you had Glad enough? about what, Matt? I'm not glad about anything. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't uh, hear you, anything. There are me four of... lights. Uh, <laughs> can't trick me lights? with your reverse psychology. I actually believed I saw Tiger Woods. <laughs> It was a chilling. Talk about him. It, it was a chilling. It was a chilling end to that episode. <laughs> yeah, um, isn't that good? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like when you were young and um, you you decided to like give one of your friends the silent treatment and ignore them, right? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was just me. But, no, I did that. I did that to my sisters. You pretend that they're not there. That, that and, they're uh, not there. But then, like, to really kind of drive the point home, you say to your friend, do you hear something? And they say, no, no, I don't, uh, I don't hear anything. Well, it is December. Have we done another December episode? No, this is our first December 2009 episode before the changing of the decade. Though, this is one of those unwinnable arguments. Does the decade change in 2010 or 2011? You know? It's like, it's like, did the millennium change in, in 2000 or 2001? I mean, I guess the argument was because there's no year zero, the 10-year period begins on year one and goes through year 10. Uh, so well, that, Matt, let me ask you this. When did the 1990s, when did the 90s begin? 1990. That's a fair point. I just, I just bring it up to be needlessly pedantic. And speaking of needlessly pedantic, we'll have a needlessly pedantic corner. <laughs> we got a couple episodes that, a couple episodes. We got a couple of emails that are maybe not worthy of a whole listener feedback episode, but they are emails. I do like this. And if you want to, if you want to send us emails at podcast at overthinking it.com or call 20 eat log zero one, that's two zero three two eight five six four zero one and correct us. I, I almost insist that you uh, you include the words well actually <laughs> in your uh, in in your message right I, I stole that from Buzz Out Loud which is a daily podcast that I, I really like and listen to um, they talk about the well actually emails uh, and they have um, there's a, they're a tech show so you know people tech people are extremely extremely pedantic because computers don't understand nuance. But, uh, yeah, we got a couple well-actually emails. But we'll get to those in just a second, right after the question of the day. Uh, we're wrapping up the decade. It's, uh, it's December 2009, and we're going to be entering the uh, 20-teens, I guess. Uh, the 1910s. Uh, if you have a better way to put it, you know, podcast at overthinkingit.com. 20eatlogs01. Let us know. Um, and also, if you want to share uh, any of your best of the decades with us, those are the, uh, the numbers. We're going to do movies, music, you know, TV shows, uh, uh, Everything you'd expect. Um, though The Wire uh, will win all of those. Uh, the unsurpassed yep. and unsurpassable pinnacle of art. 
uh, on television. But uh, so um, here, we're going we're to pitch a softball. What is your favorite moment uh, of the Overthinking It podcast <laughs> of the decade? <laughs> of the decade. Uh, what is your favorite moment of the podcast? First in alphabetical order, because all is right with the world, is Mr. Peter Fenzel. Yes! Victory is mine. <laughs> Drink. <laughs> <laughs> Drink. Uh, so I had a couple of runners-up. Uh, I've been informed that I, I, by my colleagues that the one that I'm supposed to say is when I offered any member of the Wu-Tang Clan Mint Milanos in order to appear on our show, which would be my favorite moment if they'd actually come on the show and I actually could have sent them the Mint Milanos. But they didn't, so that's going to have to stay suspended until the moment in which uh, Raekwon the Chef or You God or any of those other fellows decide to join us. <laughs> Represent um, the RZA. The RZA. <laughs> the RZA, yes. My other, my other backup moment, my other backup favorite moment was, um, I don't know if you guys remember the week before Crank 2 came out, when we all talked about how excited we were about Crank 2. Um, the the week that Crank Two actually came out, we went around and that we realized uh, talking beforehand that none of us had actually seen Crank Two, and the question for the week was why didn't you see Crank Two? Uh, and that that question I thought that was my favorite overthinking it question uh, because it spoke so much to all of our collective cultural experience. But my favorite moment on the podcast has got to have been from episode thirty nine, which was entitled. Chips are free, dinner extra, uh, which uh, we were just our main topic of discussion was Dante's Inferno. And uh, that's the, uh, the well, Dante's Inferno, the uh, divine comedy, the three pieces of it are being Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. And just on a whim, while we were talking about it, I just typed www.paradiso.com into my browser and came up with this <laughs> incredible website for this North Dakota Mexican restaurant. Uh, <laughs> right. Paradiso. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got this wonderful picture, and I'm looking at it right now, and it's still making me smile. It's got this wonderful picture. Oh, that, of- was, oh, that was from Chips Free Dinner Extra. Yeah, exactly. That's what the, that's the, the motto of the, of the restaurant, is Chips Are Free Dinner Extra, because apparently people in North Dakota have never been to a Mexican restaurant before and are not familiar <laughs> with like, what its va- basic value proposition is. Um, <laughs> but the best part of it, and I wish that you, I could show this, I wish I could beam this image directly into your brain. You could just go to Paradiso.com to find out, is that it has this like animated GIF. Um, or like something or other of this like really kind of not very flattering picture of kind of a chubby girl in a sombrero shaking some maracas as like confetti cascades around her and she beams and is surrounded by all of her family and friends as she celebrates the fact that she is eating chips for free and dinner for extra. Um, I know that there are probably turns of phrase that were better and moments where I might have had more fun, but none were quite as memorable for me as my brief excursion into the exoticness that is uh, the the uppermost part of the Great Plains and its relationship with chimichangas. (laughs) So I'm going to go with that. Excellent. Uh, Mr. Mark Lee. Hi there. What's Mine's up? pretty... Uh, there was no contest in my mind. It was um, episode 47, and the title of it says it all, and that the title is the, the favorite moment. Skynet VIP Suite. Yep. You all remember that one, right? In reference to... This was, this was the podcast where we'd all saw, seen Terminator Salvation and uh, you know came together to trash it. I think rip it a new one was the word that we used at the time. Um, but this, I can't remember if it was rather offensive, but this is in reference to when Marcus, uh, you know, Terminator guy shows up 
at Skynet headquarters in, um, you know, he's like kind of like uh, knocked out or he comes to and he, uh, you know, and he's ushered into this really posh place and redeemed with the Skynet VIP suite. And what I like about that, ep- that moment and that episode, um, not just for that one hilarious you know, turn of phrase there, the Skynet VIP suite, um, it also has, you know, that was such a cathartic moment. I think you would all agree with me in that, that we just kind of, you know, felt really wrong and violated by that movie. We all came together. We were able to express it together in a unifying moment. And, and for me, that, mo- that, that initiated a process of catharsis and healing, which still continues to this day. Um, still trying to get over Terminator Salvation. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about more uh, later in the podcast, but um, my, that's my favorite podcast moment. I, I think so Terminator thank you. Which, Salvation. Which one of you guys said that? I think Terminator Salvation was our 9-11 uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wow. I have a favorite moment. <laughs> It's like nothing afterwards was ever the same. And then we went on to like use our hatred of Terminator Salvation like and exploit it shamelessly for a variety of other unrelated reasons. Which has like bashing Avatar. Good link. So Terminator Salvation was our 9-11. Was that podcast then our George Bush like in the rubble with the megaphone? Right. Yeah, they're going to hear you all over the world. (laughs) I thought it was our My Pet Goat moment. Uh, (laughs) Uh, I recognize that laugh. That's Josh McNeil. It is. How are you? I am doing very well. Now, and you've, uh, only been, uh, you've only been uh, a regular panelist on the podcast for the last handful of episodes. I, I'm glad we finally got you on. But you participated as a listener. Uh, I did. For the first year or so of the podcast. I did. And I also I, I did participate in one or two sort of election era uh, or election issue podcasts that we did early on, I guess, October of last year. And my favorite moment comes from one of those, which was when uh, I believe it was on the podcast. The first time uh, we were talking about the phone number, the call in number. Um, and my favorite moment is just the the utter delight in your voice when you realized that the phone number also spelled 28 eat log zero one. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> that was uh, just like, I've never, I've known Matt now for like almost a decade and that was the happiest I've ever heard his voice. Like, it was just like, it was just this magical thing of beauty and, and, and it stays with me to this day. Um, and every time I hear you say it, I, I, I get a little flashback to that moment. Uh, so, it's yes, nice. a little it, it's on. Exactly. And, and, you know, I've been looking for edible logs for you for Christmas ever since. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got one for you right here, buddy. <laughs> yeah, we asked for that one. All right. Mine is, um, uh, mine is a, a bit of listener. Well, I don't know. This is my runner up. It's a bit of listener feedback we got, uh, is the, which was, um, someone was asking something about youth culture and, and they said, uh, or is it just these kids today and their rainbow parties? And so we named an episode, episode 57, Kids Today and Their Rainbow Parties. Um, and, the guy, and we talked about what rainbow parties are. Uh, search on Wikipedia uh, if you want to know about that urban legend. Uh, we won't talk about it because this is a family podcast. But uh, we... Um, oh, and then the guy wrote me back and was like, Oh, God, I thought that was just an expression that you used before. I didn't realize it was an actual thing, especially <laughs> something so degrading and disgusting as that. that, that that's um, uh, my runner-up. But uh, I got to say... <laughs> 
that's number two. That's, that's number, number two. two right there. <laughs> These kids today in their rainbow parties, episode 57. No, I got to say, um, my favorite moment is when we sent... Uh, my favorite moment was when we finally got it together to send a care package and overthinking it care package to Iraq. Mm. And that, and that, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I think that was, that was, uh, pretty cool. And I, you know, we didn't talk about it until it had been received because we didn't want to, to spoil the surprise, but you know, Hey, you know, we can do non we can do non ironic things with the popular culture. And our, our our care package included several DVDs and books and, you know, all all manner of cultural artifacts. Some of uh, which were meant to be enjoyed ironically, perhaps. Yeah, I mean the books you know, <laughs> the books were like spy thrillers, which I thought which, you know, I in shopping for them thought looked fun. Uh, the movies were pretty damn good, I gotta say. It was the, like I think Master and Commander was one of them. You know, that's, uh, yeah, mo- movies were meant to be enjoyed, period. Um, okay. All right. So that's that's mine. Uh, let's see. Any business? Oh, yeah. Podcastoverthinkingit.com, 20 eat log zero one. Uh, for uh, to leave a voicemail, always. Oh, maybe it's when people started leaving their latitude and longitude. How did that start? Does, does oh, you know, you know, that started. I think it was in our Back to the Future podcast. Um, oh, good point. Was it that? Uh, what, was, what was this? Oh, was this when, when, oh, the Back to the Future podcast is great because that's coming up on the one-year anniversary. And the reason I know that is, uh, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. That's the Karate Kid podcast. I confused that. But we're coming up on our right. one-year anniversary of the Karate Kid podcast because I podcasted from the back room of the Improv Boston Herald Night Holiday Party, which I'm going to be doing again next week. And so I called in from this party to podcast so that I could listen to Al St. Germain discuss the geography of suburban <laughs> Los Angeles for like an hour and a half. <laughs> I was really glad that I was there. <laughs> no, the latitude and longitude thing, I, I, I could be mistaken. I'm pretty sure it came from when I was talking about how a, a time traveler should come visit me in my apartment and I listened to my address on the air um, oh, you know, to prove right. that time travel existed. And I think that spun into then, you know, when someone else was giving their location, you know, we said that they should give their latitude and longitude so that we could, you know, and time travels could locate them. I believe that's what it was. I could be mistaken, though. <laughs> All right. That, if not that, that was a great moment in geolocation. That was. Location. Oh, and also I should say that this is, this is episode 75. You know? Yeah. That's not nothing. No. Like, that's it's pretty cool, I gotta more. say. Uh, and that doesn't count our various supplementals, either. No, no, no. Or the uh, the other podcast that is uh, that has started up on the site, the These Effing Teenagers podcast, um, mm. which you can find more information about that on the website. Hey, congratulations. Happy Diamond Anniversary. Woohoo! Actually, after a few... I looked up what anniversary it is, and it's Diamond. But, like, I think, like, uh, 60... 65, 70, 75, 80, and on and on are all diamond, actually, oh. right? Like, the idea, the idea being that, like, if you live that long, buy a freaking diamond already, right? You're going to blow your retirement savings by our diamond every five years. You, you've been married for 75 years? You're at least, uh, you're at least what? Like, you're at least um, 80, you're almost 90 years old? Blow your yeah. freaking retirement savings. How much longer do you think you have left? <laughs> Listen, at that age, she can't uh, tell that it's glass. <laughs> yeah, your your eyes aren't good enough to distinguish cubic zirconium. At that point, I'm mostly robot parts. So maybe maybe the the diamonds are for enhancing my drill bit that I use to burrow underground. I saw uh, up in the air George Clooney this weekend. Anyone see that? No, 
Jason, you're Ryan. the only one. Okay, no, well, then I will. I will not. Well, I thought it was good, but uh, is it but better I, than the Goats movie? Well, the Goats I, movie. I didn't see the Goats movie, but um, well, okay. Now, bah, bah, bah. Taking the Jason, the taking goat. the Jason Reitman oeuvre, right? Uh, you guys have seen Thank You for Smoking, right? Yep. Yep. And then Agreed. Juno. Everyone, everyone and their brother has seen Juno. Okay. Um, in all three movies, there's a character who is like a, a middle-aged man who is a professional who is sort of disaffected and, you know, adrift in, a, in an amoral universe and doesn't really have a leg to stand on as far as having a code of values or having a, um, uh, you know, having a, having a moral code. Right. These are not these are not Westerns. These are sort of anti-Westerns. Right. Where the uh, the protagonists like traverse the frontiers without uh, a code. It's it's, would that be would that be an Eastern? (laughs) You, you, you and always with the Asian stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, Oriental. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Except not. Um, You know, Oriental means Eastern because the Orient is where the sun rises and it rises in the East. I mean, it's it's Eurocentric, of course, but like, you know, I'm just saying. Uh, Not necessarily. I mean, it's East of a lot of places, not just Europe. Doesn't (laughs) it also mean just knowing where you are to orient yourself? Isn't that like... Well, orienting. Oriented. Knowing where you are is like oriented. Oriental is the opposite of Occident. So that's sort of very not Eurocentric, right? That's the opposite of Eurocentric. Is what being oriented? Yeah, because Europeans get freaking lost all the time. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm <laughs> saying like the direction. word that means knowing where you are is also means Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm that's saying. like that's like Elijah Muhammad quality etymology right there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what? Wow. I'm sorry. Not, I, just, I, just, I just laid a diss track on the nation of Islam. <laughs> 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 um, he, uh, speaking of diss tracks, I, I was going to make the point that there always seems to be this kind of rootless, uh, amoral drifter. It's it's uh, Aaron Eckhart in the first movie. It's Jason Bateman in Juno, and it's uh, George Clooney in this one. And I was I was kind of wondering about that character and wondering maybe what the model is for that or like what the what the impulse is uh, for doing that. But let's drop that and say, speaking of diss tracks, uh, from our well, actually pedantic corner. Um, we uh we had a uh, uh a listener write in who um had a listener write in uh who who uh, wanted to add to our best diss track prior to hip hop post uh we cl- we close comments on posts older than 3 weeks because 99% of what we get on those is spam and it just makes me tear my hair out cuz I have to go go through and delete those but um uh, but someone wrote in and uh, someone wrote in and said, "Well, I want to add a diss track. It's Catullus 13." Now, um, I have a problem here. Uh, I have a problem here, and this is what it is. Here's Catullus 13. You shall have a good dinner at my house, Fabulus. In a few days, please the gods, if you bring with you a good dinner, and plenty of it, not forgetting a pretty girl, and wine and wit and all kinds of laughter. If I say you bring all this, my charming friend, you will have a good dinner, for the purse of your Catullus is full of cobwebs. But on the other hand, you shall have from me love's very essence, or what is sweeter or more delicious than love, if sweeter there be. For I will give you some perfume which the Venuses and loves gave to my lady." 
And when you sniff its fragrance, you will pray the gods to make you, Fabulous, nothing but nose. Yeah, I'm going to call BS on Catullus 13 <laughs> uh, being, uh, uh, being a diss track. Uh, there are... Oh, damn, I can't believe you said that. Exactly. You just I... dissed, dissed, it, dissed the disser. <laughs> dissed his own, like, dinner hosting abilities. Yeah, that's, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, it's, it's more a, it's more a self-effacing kind of thing, because he's talking about how poor he is, because he can't give the guy dinner, and like, hey, if you come to my house, you'll have a great dinner, so long as you bring the dinner with you. <laughs> Boom! Booyah! Bo- sick Zap. burn! Sick burn! Yeah, yeah. Did you? Mean, I would like uh, to thank this caller for giving me, you know, an idea for my next dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it? Uh, yeah, that's Tim. Uh, Tim, I don't know. Uh, you gotta. Um... I feel like I'm being remiss here because having studied Latin for a long time, I should know the sort of stock interpretation of this piece because I'm pretty sure there's probably a way in which to read all that as a vicious insult, but I would just be guessing at this point um, because there's always these, these like stock readings that have been developed over thousands of years for these poems. So maybe Tim can share with us at some point, maybe he can call into the voicemail and leave us an explanation for why this is a diss track. Uh, I mean, the only thing I can see right now is maybe because maybe the po- the the perfume is like how sweet the rhymes are of Catullus. Um, I'm not sure, so we'll see what happens. And Tim, when Tim, when you call in, if you can lay down a fat beat underneath your disc <laughs> or your explanation of the disc, we would really appreciate that as well. Fat beats are key. That, I think that was from uh, Horace wrote that or Tert. No, is it Terence? Like you got to have a fat beat. All right, um, you got to have a wicked jump shot or sling the crack rock. Oh, so- yeah, that was big. Um, oh, let's see. So what else? Okay. So, uh, uh, in episode 74, um, uh, in reference to a shark versus a giant octopus, (laughs) mega shark, not just a shark, mega shark. Versus giant octopus. There's Sorry. only one of each. In one. reference to Mega Shark versus a giant octopus, we got an email. No, from... uh, just, just giant octopus. It's like eponymous. It's like its name. Giant octopus. <laughs> got it. Sorry. Versus giant Mega Shark versus giant octopus. Thank you. That, okay, I said it right. We got an email. Oh, uh, emailer didn't leave his name. So. Um, He's stealth. He is like he's like a shadow in the night, leaving us little pearls of wisdom and then disappearing into the darkness. <laughs> I uh, says listening. Uh, uh, yeah, didn't leave his name, and the email address is a Verizon cell phone number. It's the like the VText system where you can email from your text messaging phone. Uh, well, Matt, I think you should read it on the podcast and no. have our other <laughs> listeners help us find out who he is. No, <laughs> I, I I really should not do that. I am gonna Google this this. Uh, I'm gonna Google no, don't this. Google it, Matt. That's ridiculous. Facebook search it. <laughs> Facebook searching it will get you a better result than Googling it, right? Uh, or you can just tell uh, us what he wrote in with. Yeah. Here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wrote in to say, listening to episode 64, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. As octopus is Greek, not Latin-derived, plural is not octopi, which, which was a point that I made, but octopuses or octopode. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Can someone explain the octopode part there? Because my I'm not so familiar with you know my ancient Greek isn't quite as snuff. That would be the um uh well, octopodes the... might be a, a right. I mean, is the S really silent, or is it is it octopodes or is it octopode? Yeah, it would be octop. It would be octopodes, I think. Okay. Um, 
It, it's octopodes. Now, uh, look, I'm going to make a I'm going to make a point here that you may or may not agree with. The um, the uh, it is Latin derived. Uh, sorry, Greek derived, but the Greek has been Latinized, right? With the U.S. ending, it would be you know it would be octopos, P.O.S. Right foot. If you were going to stay, uh, um, it, if you were going to stay strictly with the Greek, because the last it's actually few- it's actually P.O.U.S. P.O.U.S. If it were in the Greek. Okay, so it's it's what it's it's pi omega epsilon sigma. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at the end entry in my favorite online etymology dictionary for it, but that's what they're saying, that it's uh, pi omega. I mean, they don't have the Greek letters, though. Yeah. Maybe we can find some. Maybe there's the Perseus Project? No, they wouldn't. Arr. I'm sorry. You, you keep going. You keep going. Um, yeah. So, uh, oh, look at the entry on, uh, on Wiktionary. I just looked up octopus in Greek and found a delicious recipe for grilled and marinated octopus. <laughs> it's a Greek classic, and it's a favorite to serve with ouzo and wine. Excellent. So, so de- um, deliciously distracted. <laughs> people say the classics are dead, but look, ancient Greek and Latin live on. They're the only podcast. So this it's, is this uh, exactly what Cicero had in mind. Right. It's, uh, it's what, Delta... What is it's, that? It's, an epsilon, okay. delta uh, epsilon sigma. So um, anyway, so it's been look, look. I'd make the argument that the Greek word was Latinized. Really? Oh, Pete just typed something into the. You see, I I have this from Wiktionary. Oh, uh, yeah, I just got that from from uh, Wikipedia. Ah. For those of you at yeah. home, there are Greek letters being bandied about the internet, which you are not privy to. <laughs> which, our, but for us, our, it's fascinating. Into our back channel Skype chat. Huh. The, the wiki sources have different spellings of octopus. But still, my point stands, which is, well, actually, the word octopus, right, was imported into Latin and comes into English f- from Latin, not from Greek. And so you would... You would um, uh, you would borrow it. Um, uh, you'd use the Latin. You'd use the Latin plural, except the Latin plural, because it's a fifth declension noun, uh, would actually be octopodes, right? So, um, so there you go. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, if it were so, one of the, the points that's made in the Oxford English Dictionary in 2004 was that if the word were Latin, it would be octopace or octopedes because the root for Latin doesn't have a U.S. at the end. It's actually a third declension noun in both Greek and in Latin. Um, well, though that's a coincidence. Uh, let's see, Latinization of a no, yeah, third declension masculine in Greek. The actual Latin word for octopus is polypus. Um, which is also very interesting. Huh. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I want to I point out here that, um, you know, um, we are kind of you know, refuting our, uh, the pedantry that our, our listeners, you know, have, have, have written in to yeah, us. This is a, um, this however, is a however, Yeah, but what, like, I think we, we often said that overthinking is definitely a pedantry-friendly zone, and I think that that still is true. It's just that whenever, you know, pedantry comes up, you just really open yourself up to being over-pedantized. 
by other overthinkers. Well, according okay. to according to Fowler's modern English usage, and I'm quoting this, it states that the only acceptable plural in English is octopuses, and that octopi is misconceived, and octopodes is pedantic. <laughs> so, and then there's a little link to pedantic if you don't know what it means. So we have oh, it's, uh, it's our website. How do you, you know? You didn't know that. That's crazy. <laughs> Uh, all right, so that was those were two great little pop culture notes there. Wait, wait, wait. no, no, no. There's so much more to talk about involving the of octopus. Latin, you know the the. What this, what this fails to recognize is what would happen if you made a movie called Giant Sharks versus Octopodes, like oh, or no, make, sharks make, your giant point, make your point about the etymology of shark before we before we. Oh yeah, the, the, like the etymology. I was talking about this on the website. That actually the etymology of no, shark. You're, talk, you're talking about this on the on the. Email list I'm sorry, no on the email thread on the, yeah, on the yeah. back channel for us. Um, again, my favorite online etymology dictionary. The uh, the root of shark is actually unknown. Um, in 1569, um, a man came, um, in 1565, a man named Captain John Hawkins came back from an exhibition, uh, an expedition, and around 1569, there was a uh, a specimen of it. Uh, that they had discovered of a, of a shark, um, and the the quote from the handbill advertising it was: "There is no proper name for it that I know, but that certain man of Captain Hawkins's doth call it a shark." Um, and uh, it says, it, it, according to the dictionary, it's uncertain of origin. Um, that we don't know it. Basically, the word shark like came out of the water. Right, like it came back from the ocean, and we don't know where it came from, and we didn't see it, and it's totally unknown. It sneaks up on us, and then it eats you. You know, um, <laughs> that could totally be a word that some people made up on a boat. It is honestly like probably a word that people made up on a boat. Um, he brought it back from somewhere. I'm sure that I could look at his second ex- expedition and find some of the places that he went, but that wouldn't be a conclusive proof of anything. Um, yeah, no, it's like a word that's – it's funny because it's such a cool word. It's such a cool monosyllabic English word that usually by that point – although it is 1500s, it's still pretty early. But usually at that point, all the cool single-syllable English words are pretty much taken, right? Like usually when people are inventing new words later on in English, they tend to make them more multisyllabic because they have to pull in roots from various languages. Right. And there's not usually a nice little like word like shark that's waiting for you. Okay, um, so you got, I, you got from us the lyric poetry of the late Roman Republic – and you got, uh, and you got what a detour into Latin and Greek etymology. That is subjecting the popular culture to a level of scrutiny and probably doesn't deserve, right? If it isn't, I don't know what is. Okay, Mark, you are the one who typed into the back channel chat. Let's move on from this. So you better have something good. Hey, Mark, any hey, uh, any uh, uh, film box sets coming out that you're interested in? Uh, I don't know about coming out, but has come out. Oh yeah, uh, certainly. And and it was interested in might not be the right word either to use for this. But well, um, actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of pedantry, um, no. I want to talk. I wanted to bring up the issue of Terminator again. Terminator Salvation again. Even though I know we've kind of beaten this dead horse again, starting with episode forty-seven, Skynet VIP Suite back in May after the movie came out, we've been continuously beating that dead horse. Uh, but Terminator's back. Um, it came out on DVD on December 1st. Uh, all of five people at a Walmart in Wilmington, Vermont may have bought it. Um, but uh, it, it kind of like has reinvaded my conscience for a few reasons. One, because the, the DVD, uh, the advertisements have been flashing all about television and on the internets where you see the awful flashy flash ads. 
come up. And it's really had me uh, thinking about overthinking about Terminator again. And, and in addition to the DVD release, you've kind of heard some other buzz as well, too. One, um, you know, Halcyon, the entertainment company which owns the rights to Terminator, uh, has filed for bankruptcy and is auctioning off a lot of its assets. And um, potentially one of them would be the, term, the rights to the Terminator uh, franchise. So someone else could buy those up. So that's kind of been in the news recently. Also, Josh Whedon you know, put in a bid for the Terminator rights, which I think we should give them to him. Um, he would do a better job than McGee, certainly. Uh, but then the other things, so, so the, the Terminator news is coming out. McGee um, you know, says that he's still up for making the, a fifth and sixth Terminator movie. Um, so oh, all this news swirling around um, basically, you know, has me thinking like, you know, have, have people <laughs> not learned the lesson that of the, the abomination that was Terminator is, you know, someone going to, you know, are people going to keep perpetuating this travesty upon us. You know, I was ready to to move on. You know, I wrote my the, the overthinking a gift guide piece about Terminator action figures. I'm ready to move on and just, you know, kind of put this aside and just be OK with Terminators one and two. But no, it's going to keep rolling on us and i i fear the future what more so you're saying there's, the there's sort of this unstoppable force uh that is sort of marching forward in a kind of horrible way to exact some sort of terrible cost from humanity <laughs> and, and there's, there's nothing that we can do to stop it because it's just unstoppable and invincible. you mean you mean fate are you referring to fate pete there's no fate for what we make, Mark. But there I don't is, know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm beginning to, as I wrote in the, <laughs> that, that screed that I wrote back in the summer, I, I, the, it seems very much that um, there is plenty of fate besides what we make for ourselves. And one of those <laughs> is, you know, the economics of movie making. Where basically, right, Halcyon's got this asset, the Terminator franchise. It's going to be auctioned off. Someone's going to own the rights to Terminator, and they're going to want to make some money off of it. So there's going to be another movie. Yeah, but there's certainly there's certainly agency involved in all this, right? It's, there is the we here is the part that you're, you need to expand upon because Halcyon counts among the we that creates the fate of which well, there is none other than okay. what is made by us. So specifically right? the we, right? When, I, when I'm going back again to the to the article that I wrote, um, no fate, but what we make the greatest Terminator lie ever told. I think was the full title of it. The we yeah. in the context of yeah. Terminator always yes. pretty much refers to the scrappy band of underdogs. Mm-hmm. Right. Not not the ones in power, but the underdogs, you know, the Sarah Connor, the John Connor, the, the freedom fighters, you know, who have the special knowledge, who are trying to change the future. They're trying to determine their own fate. And then, you know, when that was translated, you know, when for the context of the Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles TV show, the fans of the show appropriated that uh, that phrase, no fate, but what we make as their as their rallying cry, no fate, but what we the. The fan base, right? We are typically powerless, but there's no fit. But what we make, so we can help prevent the show from canceling, getting canceled. So that's what I refer to in the we in this. I don't consider the Halcyon or the big, you know, the the, the movie studios to be the we in this at all. But doesn't that fit into sort of the Saved by the Bell metaphysical trap? The notion that like all of experience is dominated by like you and your immediate group of friends and what you happen to be doing and thinking about at a given time. Like, uh, yeah, um, yes, it does. I mean, <laughs> you can't have. I mean, you can't have narrative. Narrative becomes almost unbearably depressing without that fallacy. Oh yeah, because then well, because it's just too many people. And well, yeah, because there are just too many people to like comprehend a story, and it's like then all your stories become like Babel or Babel or whatever, which whichever it was pronounced, right? Where oh, like the, the Brad Pitt, uh, uh, Kate Blanchett movie about yeah, or become Crash or something, them. where it's a bunch of like life is a bunch of solitudes that protect and border and greet one another. Mm. Uh, to to paraphrase Rilke. Um, 
Right, that like, and none of us has any agency at all, and it's just, uh, it's just a bunch of random happenstances, and a, a butterfly flaps its wings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And that's not right. you can't have narrative doing that. It's it's something else. It's not narrative. So there's not there's no steps between the idea that the people who are the fans of the show are the only people whose opinions or thoughts are going to matter as to what is good or bad and what's going to happen to the show or if we don't, if we step outside of that little microcosm all of a sudden we're in this sort of wild wind windswept um like uh, oh, what's the word? Not the what's the term that I'm that I'm thinking about? The desert of the real, right? Where like there there's nothing to hold on to, there's nothing to look at, and all of a sudden there's all these different people who have rights to Terminator movies, and it doesn't make any sense, and and the and, and the Earth is a horrible well, existential mess. But, wow, that's that's dark. <laughs> like, well, you know, dun 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 dun, dun you know, that's that's what they wrote the music for. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> no, let me put it in a different way. Let me, this whole fate and economic determinism business, which is um, that. There should be some common sense coming into play here, right? The critical consensus and the fan community consensus is that Terminator is crap. And, you know, the best thing for it might be to let it die. And certainly McGee shouldn't be allowed to direct any more Terminator movies. And yet all these things seem to still be within the realm of possibility. Um, that you get that feeling of, their, you know, the, the, um, that fate is kind of taking over. And just, you know, there's some Hollywood crap is going to be rolled out in the machine again. Um, you know, like a Terminator robot barreling down upon us, traveling through time, um, hell-bent on destroying us. Yeah, but not one week before Terminator Salvation actually came out, you were really excited about it. And you thought it was going to be fun. And, like, you were, like, really jazzed. No, l- let, me, l- let, me, let me clarify. <laughs> like, how reality seems so drastically just because of one bad movie? Let me, set the rec- let me set the record straight here. <laughs> These r- r- vicious internet rumors start coming out that Mark Lee was actually, you know, really excited about Terminator Salvation. Yeah. Um, I was anticipating it, certainly. I think I was at best cautiously optimistic about its <laughs> prospects of being a good movie or, or being acceptable, at least. Well, I, I will say that even as the success of previous Terminator movies is no guarantee of the awfulness of, of, of the success of future Terminator movies, the awfulness of previous Terminator movies is no guarantee of the awfulness of future Terminator movies. Because there's always the possibility that things are going to change from the way that they were. In fact, it's even metaphysically possible for there to be some sort of crazy quantum tunneling event wherein a DVD of Terminator Salvation spontaneously turns into a DVD of a different terminator 4 movie that is actually excellent now granted the probability of it is close to zero but it's still a possibility uh and i think that we need to get i'm going to actually get a dvd of it i'm going to hold it in a jar for a hundred billion trillion years (laughs) until this happens uh, in hopes that we'll We'll have a better Terminator movie, but is this, is this that's like, going like, to be at least like podcast 100 before that happens. What? Can, can you apply Schrodinger's cat to this? Like Schrodinger's Terminator DVD when you put yeah, it in the box? Sure. You're not sure. Okay. Like, <laughs> we, can totally, we can totally apply it. So what we do is we take we take a DVD of Terminator of Terminator Five, right? And we don't look at it. And we put it in a box. <laughs> no, um, so, so getting back to what you said, like this, this, you're right. Okay, so there's nothing that guarantees that the next that future Terminator movies will be bad, right? right. But a yeah, lot of the evidence right now of, of the franchise, especially given you know, the current narrative structure that they... That the, the, not I want to say narrative structure. Narrative cluster F that they put forward in Terminator <laughs> Salvation, 
That thing right is not a lot of good. Such vitriol behind that F. Just like F. (laughs) Anyway, continue. (laughs) Um, Given that basically there's a very weak foundation for future Terminator stories to be told if they're going to continue with the continuity of the last one. Right. right. And with all, all you know, with, with the, again, with the economic movie, economic determinism coming into play here, the chances that a movie is going to come out sooner as opposed to later are great. Or, right. The chances are that a movie is going to, a new Terminator movie is going to come out sooner as opposed to later. And the sooner that movie comes out, the more likely it is that they're going to be felt, have felt beholden to try to build off the narrative that was built on Terminator Salvation. And they're trying to get Christian Bale back again. All other well, garbage. let me give you an alternative. An alternative right now is that there has never been a time other than at this very moment where you personally, Mark Lee, have had more control over what is going to happen to the Terminator franchise like than at this very moment. Because You mean there's whoever, no faith what I make? Myself? No faith, I, well, you, well, yeah, because if you can get the money to buy the rights to the Terminator franchise, <laughs> which has not been a possibility for you at any point up until now, um, then, then you can decide what happens to it, right? So who's going to end up buying it? You know, maybe it, it's funny because in the past, like when when uh, we were seeing Terminator Three, we were seeing Terminator Salvation. Like those projects have been in development for a long time. There's really nothing that you can do to really set them off course or anything like that. But at this point, like it's up for grabs. Like anybody can make that movie happen. And and, and I think that it isn't necessarily common sense that it's going to be horrible or that there's no hope left in there. I think that it's it's confirmation bias. It's like you're basing it off of your most recent anecdotal evidence of what might happen now. Granted, I'm mostly playing devil's advocate because, yeah, it's probably going to suck. Like, let's be perfectly honest with each other. But I don't see that as, like, evidence of any sort of strong deterministic argument about, like, our effects, our relative effect on the Terminator franchise. Like, the Terminator people could start raising money. Like, you could say, set up a fund, donate a dollar to buy Terminator back. Right, and see how many dollars you can get for that, and see if you can throw that into some sort of coalition to get sort of fan control of the Terminator <laughs> see, franchise. See, well, that's Crazy a great idea. It's a great idea. I don't wouldn't do it if I didn't have a clear idea as to what I would do with the rights of the franchise after I got it. Well, it seems to me that you have a pretty idea, clear idea of what not to do. So, like, just don't do that, and it's going to be better, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> then you could say, then I could say, like, I'm making a Terminator musical. That's not doing, you know, what. You know, McGee would do with it, right? McGee wouldn't make a Terminator musical. If I said I would make a Terminator musical, that's not doing McGee. I'm not necessarily saying McGee would make a Terminator musical because I can't say that with confidence. It's entirely possible that McGee will at some point in the future make a Terminator. In fact, of all the outcomes we've discussed that have come up, McGee making a Terminator musical is probably one of the most likely. Um, but yeah, yeah. Or it no, could be it's, a, uh, like a, a Shakespearean retelling. Oh, no. What were you going to do a Shakespearean retelling of, oh, Pete? Or do, 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 do you not want to talk about it? I don't want to go into it at length because I may still write it at some point. But yeah. That's I fantastic. wanted to do a Shakespearean retelling of Robocop. Yeah, you tried you tragical history of Robocop. Yeah, the tragical history of Robocop. So watch quick, out quick, for it. Quick diversion on Robocop. I actually just watched Robocop for the first time a couple of hours ago. What did uh, you think? And- Why are we wasting time talking about this other crap? What did you think? <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I don't know if I'm not, I haven't prepared to overthink Robocop, so I'm still kind of processing. Um, all of it, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, right. uh, trying to add a new directive to my program. Did here. you like it? Was oh, it fantastic? Fun? It was. It was <laughs> yes, there you go. It's a great movie. It's wonderfully entertaining. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, so many great one-liners in it as well too. Um, okay, so here going back to Terminator. Point, the uh, one thing that I could constructively uh, suggest that I would do with Terminator is completely reboot it from scratch. Okay. Take the first, uh, take the first original Terminator, and remake that. Mm. That's what I would do. Right. What do you think of that? 
I love that. that idea. I think that would be great. You, I you, think- you've, you've mentioned this before. You're a proponent of um, of more remakes, right? Like instead of like treating um, the original shooting of a movie as a sacred text, right? You're trying to treat, treat the script of a movie and the story more as kind of like well, Shakespeare. Like, like we yeah. were just mentioned. Well, because right. like any theatrical production that you do, you know, an actor, oh, I want to see this guy's King Lear. I want to see Jude Law's Hamlet. I want to see Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. I want to see Ethan Hawke's Hamlet. There's so much to the interpretation and the craft of the interpretation of acting, and the relationship between performance and text has so many different directions that it can go in. Um, that it seems a real shame and a real loss that we don't get to see that relationship play out in other dire- other um, directions than the one that it it actually plays out in in our uh, commercial reality. Yeah, but Pete, wouldn't you say that a that a movie is is less like a play and more like a novel? Wouldn't I? That's putting words in my mouth. Why would I say that? Would you not? Would you? Would, <laughs> would you no, not? I, would, I would not say that at all. I would say that a movie is much more like a play than like a novel because the, the people who read it to you, you have the experience of it through the lens of a performer, not through your own lens as a reader of the text, right? Um, I mean, of course, we have to step back a bit. And we have to be like, well, what is a text? And what is my understanding of a text? And how do I interpret it? I'm a post-structuralist with my thumb up my butt. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's you know. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's the thing about post-structuralism, right? Is that that when people raise the specter of post-structuralism, they're not really raising the specter of post-structuralism. They've read one little essay by Derrida <laughs> called "Structure, Sign, and Play in the Discourse of the Human Sciences." The Human Sciences, right? Um, and because they've read structure, sign, and play, they think that, you know, everything is structural and it's all the reality of free play and there's no fixed determined meaning of anything, you know, or maybe a couple of the essays out of writing indifference. But, um, like, you know, and they, they're, they're, they're ignoring the whole sweep of post-structuralist thought. A lot of post-structuralist thought is apolitical because it denies the basis on which con- political convictions rest, right? Mm. That is to say, here's the problem with post-structuralism, right? It, at least in, in its vulgar uh, misinterpretation by people who would who would deploy it in service of a you know of a political ideology like oh say feminism right mm-hmm. the um the 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 problem is this right um things that I like are all post structuralist but things that I don't like are in fact sinister conspiracies that have a <laughs> beginning middle and an end right like uh you know, there's no meaning except the conspiracy. That's a, you know, that's a meaning, right? And that, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, anti-feminism, right? That that escapes structural structurality. You know, the the problem with the tiny little sliver of of the vast. Uh, body of 1960s and 1970s, uh, predominantly French uh, philosophy of language, of literature, uh, and of sociology that gets lumped together as post-structuralism. The problem with the tiny little sliver of that that gets deployed uh, by recent undergraduates, uh, you know, in in service of of political arguments, is that it doesn't leave you a leg to stand on. Once mm. you know, once everything is is just totally contingent, and uh, you know there are no values, right, and and all this, you you can't 
you know, that's a black hole argument. It's nothing. It's like gray goo. It, you know, it it doesn't uh, ever leave you. Mm. Does that make like that, the smooth? Like the smooth. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, does, no. does the point that I'm trying to make make sense that you can't you can't ever get away from it? Is, is well, the yeah. Problem. I mean, one of the one of the main things that comes up in a lot of post structuralist thought is is the degree to which these sort of structures that have these problems and irre- irreconcilable difficulties, you know, the, the sort of irreconcilable issues with text and interpretation are not things that we can get away from. They're not things that you can reduce. So I don't know. I, I sort of tend. This is maybe another piece of sort of improv of wisdom that I bring with me, but um, one of the examples they always give you when you're first starting out in a comedy class is that scene where Lucy and Ethel are in the chocolate factory, and the chocolates are coming down the uh, the conveyor belt, right? And they're like, uh, they have to try to put the chocolates in the thing, but they start coming too fast, right? And so, as a comedian, now, as Lucy, you could say, okay, this is something clearly wrong, like, I need to go get a shift supervisor, I need to fess up, like, this is a big problem, like, maybe I need to stop the conveyor belt. But as a comedian, what you do is you live in the problem. Uh, and that's the, that's the axiom that goes with, with the sort of comedic interpretation of this, is that you recognize that there's a problem, and you don't necessarily feel like you have to solve it in order to move the scene forward. You Living in the problem is a perfectly fine way of aesthetically and artistically addressing an irreconcilable difference that either you have with an ideology or two ideologies have with each other. Right, like I, I think that that uh, the great deal of uh, objects of ar- artistic objects of beauty are built on the notion of living in the problem. And yes, like you're not going to be able to reduce them in logical terms to something that is cogent, to something that is satisfying. Um, and the degree to which politics depends on this leaves a gap in the sort of moral authority of politics. But it doesn't necessarily undermine the aesthetic purpose that these things are serving, or the artistic purpose that it's serving, or the role of art in our lives. Why we talk about it, why we like it. You know, because all of us, I think, in this world, to an extent, we are Lucy standing by that conveyor belt, and the chocolates are going to keep coming. And either you can complain, and you can say, oh my god, the chocolates are coming, like, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, this isn't really the way that it's supposed to work, or you can open up your brassiere, and you can start shoving bonbons in there like there's no tomorrow, <laughs> and you tell me which one, at the end of the day, is going to be the way you want it to live your life. And make that, oh, wait make a minute. That, wait, wait, yeah, wait. I, I, I missed the connection between... What? I missed the connection... <laughs> But, oh, I got it, I got it. Wait, 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 let me look. So in that in that scenario, I'm Lucy and the conveyor belt is Terminator. Right? I'm just complaining about it, or I should just be stuffing into my brazier, right? <laughs> no, I think what, what I was saying, Matt, is that I think in the core, I mean, this is also me deploying a fairly small amount of post-structuralist ideology, but I think that at the core of a lot of post-structuralist thought is, is this idea of irreconcilability, right? Or like that you can't... Yeah, or ir- the word that gets thrown around a lot is irreducibility. Irreducibility, right? And, and there, I think that that and I was talking about this in a long that is, series. That is to say, and what that means, it's irre- an irreducible thing is is the it's the point at which you can't generalize anymore from the thing. That is to say, there are no more levels of abstraction that you can move up from right, uh, from right. the point that you're at. Right, and I mean, I think if I wanted to step back to like my own more comfortable kinds of academic training, um, uh, I would I would locate that in sort of the argument of uh, nat of first principles versus. Uh, uh, things that aren't built on first principles is that why do you feel like that you need to um, reduce this further? Like why when I'm talk say that I'm talking about um, you know say I'm talking about uh, Top Secret right the Val Kilmer movie and I get to a certain point about it where I can't uh, push any farther into my interpretation of the text because there's something about it that just doesn't yield to further analysis um, like. 
it, why is it necessary? I think it comes from this idea that I think is is kind of necessary to academia that a lot of this is kind of a video game or something. Like you have to win at critiquing literature um, by pushing as hard as you can and, and keeping on pushing, and the person who pushes the farthest wins. Mm-hmm. But like I don't necessarily go out to critique literature in order to win the art, the like win the the war of critiquing it. Like there are other reasons why I go out there, right? And so. Um, and what I'm what I'm connecting it to post structuralism is, and what was the? It wasn't irreducible. You said it was not. Um, what was it again, Matt? The term irreducible. Irreducible. When you get to something that's irreducible, there's this uh, there's this pejorativeness. And I was talking about this with Ryan Shealy in a series of emails that we talked about with post structuralism earlier this week. We were talking about it in the context of the Snoop Dogg song. Uh, um, B's ain't S's, um, which I had brought up as an example earlier as something that was misogynistic. Um, that that um that that the by making that judgment that it's irreducible uh, and then by by pointing out it with great complexity um, the irreducible qualities of more complex texts there is and you can deconstruct this as well or fail to deconstruct it uh, a perturbation that comes with your word choice right and then that um, okay this is irreducible I can't move any farther with this therefore I am wrong or what I'm saying is bad. Right, and what I'm saying with the Lucy example is fine. Like we use the tools that post-structuralism gives us to come to a certain point of understanding in the text, and we get to a certain point where we can't reduce it anymore. And maybe some of the things that we're saying aren't as true as we would like them to be, and maybe some of the things that we're saying have certain reservations about them that we should be aware of. But this doesn't invalidate necessarily why we go out to do this in the first place. And I, I don't know, post-structuralism doesn't admit to something called a human condition, right? Because it's post-human, anti-humanist. Um, the idea that humanism is just another kind of theism but like um i mean if you're going out there uh yeah you gotta consider like what is what is a human being trying to do these things for the literature doesn't exist i mean even if literature exists or doesn't exist independent of people like i'm a person you know and i want to talk about i want to overthink my favorite kind of literature um I guess the metaphor was the best attempt that I had to try to explain it, to try to explain how I feel about it, which is that you have your, – in your life, you're going to be faced with a, a great degree of doubt and a great degree of uncertainty about how things happen. And I think that there are people who try to harness this uncertainty as active proof. They, they beg the question. They, they beg the question of uncertainty in life and uncertainty in the universe. Um, they, they, they circle back and they point out the uncertainty that the people who are proactively coming up with aesthetic solutions and pieces of art are doing – you know, I, I come up with – I say the world doesn't make any sense to me, right? So, like, I write a story about my own experience or that I just sort of come up with that tries to make sense of the world. And someone goes into that and deconstructs it or fails to deconstruct it and shows me that, no, like, actually that story doesn't do anything to really resolve the uncertainty of life. And I was like, well, you because, know what? Yeah, because the meaning, because the meaning of it can't be uh, fixed in a, in a sort of – can't be determined in a fixed way. Right. So since my story can't have a fixed and determined meaning, well, like, therefore I've sort of – done nothing from when i started right and i'm still where i started right right, right. but no i'm not where i started like i made this yeah i made a story i wrote a i wrote a story yeah no that's 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 fantastic and right like look i i think a lot can be said about post-structuralism and post-structuralism in literary criticism which is called deconstruction a lot of the time and um it's a subset, right? But yeah, it's, 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 right. Yeah, it's a. It's actually there's sort of a misunderstanding in our no. Pete and my uh, great teacher, um, maybe my greatest English professor. Though you studied with Bromwich, so it's kind of a toss up, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the um, right, uh, you know, made a long point about like the French word deconstruction actually means 
interpret is like a is a way of saying interpretation, and so it doesn't mean like this. Oh, it's an intellectual taking apart. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. so I'll I'll use post structuralist in uh, instead. I I think a lot can be said about the the um, uh, the relationship of post structuralism to. Uh, to something like the new criticism in in you know English literature, where the poem was an equation to be solved, and they they worked right. a lot with romantic poetry, and it came out to a particular answer, right? Yeah. In in deconstruction, well, in post structuralism, the poem is also an, an equation to be solved, and it comes out to a particular answer, which is that there is no answer, right? Yeah. And that this kind of this kind of extremely this is very seductive, um, and. Uh, you know, forgive me, anyone I'm insulting, but this is this is very seductive to people at a certain point in their lives, you know, or mm. or to people who are looking for academic jobs, you know, and mm. where the where the idea is kind of to be more clever, more clever than the um, more clever than the next guy. My my problem with this whole thing is not not in sort of denying meaning. It's just that it's just that it's. Um, Meaning is only denied to certain things, you know, right? The uh, the sort of selective application. You use yeah. it to undermine the pol- political points of the people who disagree with you, but not to take the beam out of your own eye and recognize when you're doing the same thing that they're doing. Well, sort of, yeah, exactly, right? Like the, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, nothing has a fixed meaning, except you know what has a fixed meaning? Patriarchy, you know? Yeah. You know what has a fixed meaning? <laughs> Racism. You know, yeah. and you don't you don't get to do that if you're intellectually honest. You know. Mm. You, uh, anyway, I'm sorry. We've we've gone off the pop culture beam again. Someone bring us back. Well, I, I'll, I'll ask you guys to tie this back to the original starting point from this, which was about you know um, the appropriateness of doing remakes of movies. And uh, I want you guys to tie it back to that, and not just for me to be the the douchebag who always tries to get us back on topic, because I really want to know. Um, how this how this fits in here? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll connect it for you right now, because think about think about that little loop that I put together yes, before. Of the guy. Pete says yes, and <laughs> sorry, yeah, yes, and because I'm an improviser. Think about that loop of the guy who, or like you know, I'm a guy, but maybe it's a girl, whatever, who puts together something to try to alleviate the meaninglessness of life, and then is then sort of shown that this thing is meaningless, and is brought back to to the start. Um, when you, cr- you there's something about creating art, creating an art object, creating you know a piece of literature, movie, whatever. Um, that I, I do think that the the reasons that you do it are somewhat going to be somewhat obscure, and attempting to explain them uh, too much um, will will often fail um, because it, it won't get to the heart of like what's actually going on and. You take the life out of the act of creating, right? So I think that the act of creating something is is a is a good thing, regardless of whether it means something or not. Um, now you then take something like take something like the Terminator story, right? The plot line of the first Terminator movie, uh, and think about that as like a piece of cake, right? Um, okay. It's like a solid piece of cake. And what the first Terminator movie does is it is it there takes is, the <laughs> there is what? no cake but what we make. No uh, cake. But what we make. <laughs> Um, there, then you put on top. I mean, you put at the top of the cake the various toppings, the icing, the the sort of the flowers, the performances, the the even things like the sound editing, you know, the music, the set design. There's all number of other artists. This, of course, fights against the auteur theory, right? The the idea that the director of a movie is the person who's primarily and and almost solely artistically responsible for it. Think of a movie as yeah, a that, creative. I mean, yeah, but that theory does does not take into account the actual reality, the actual means of production. 
production, the actual yeah. reality of making movies in the world. I mean, the most of the problem I have with critics is because I like to make the stuff, and I don't necessarily, and I love talking about it, but I also like to make the stuff, which means that I don't get a lot of ammunition from criticism to talk about my actual experience of doing it, right? Because they don't like to talk about guys like me who just like to waste our weekends doing nonsense. Um, they, they like to talk about writing papers. Um, I shouldn't say that thing. I shouldn't otherize them like that. Whatever, we're all on the same team. Um, but I'm <laughs> saying that that there were there yeah. were like a lot of different people who participated in making critics, the first. Critics do nothing but bear witness to their own impotence. <laughs> well, we criticize all the time. That's what we're doing right now. So I mean, I know I'm not entirely impotent. I mean, sometimes it's been a long day, and I just need like a cup of coffee and a bit of a nap. But uh, okay, <laughs> that notwithstanding, that notwithstanding, um, the, geez, I'm doing everything possible to drive people out of my room. All right, that with the root beer cans and everything. Um, so if you think of the many, many people who participated in making the first Terminator movie awesome, like think about how exciting it is to be able to to put the the strawberries and to put the roses and to put the icing on top of a really awesome cake. Right. Think about how awesome it is to play the Terminator and think about all the craft that goes into it and all the art that goes into it, and all of yourself that goes into it. Think of how much Arnold has to do to put into it. Think about how much Bill, even Bill Paxton in his one little role in the movie has to put in this movie, how much Linda Hamilton puts into this movie. Why is it that those people get to be the only people who get to do it? And that's that's my question. And the post-structuralist side of it would say, like, you know, um, really, there's nothing that's intrinsically Terminator-ish, right? Like Terminator is not a is uh, ter- there's nothing intrinsically Terminator-ish about Terminator. Terminator doesn't really mean anything. It's only the actual Terminator movie is only meaningful in terms of the context that we understand it, which we've all agreed upon through a sort of consensus. But like, is actually not really worth much. There's no great crime against like intellectualism or against uh, you know truth or thought, which also don't exist, to make another Terminator movie, right? So the idea is that post-structuralism on one hand. Um, it, condemns almost everything we do uh, as artists. But on the other hand, it gives us carte blanche because it sort of says that not much of what we do matters because we're just sort of twisting in the wind in certain different directions. So, like, I think the main objection to making a new Terminator movie is this idea that it violates some sort of sacred text, right, that, that the Terminator movie is sacred. Uh, and I, what I'm saying is that a post-instructionalist interpretation that shows us that, that Terminator gets to a certain point can't be reduced can't be clarified to this sort of clarion note of truth, um, it gives us a certain freedom to give other actors the opportunity to try. And maybe that trying doesn't mean anything, and maybe it does, but we're never going to figure it out until we let somebody else. Until we let Freddie Prince Jr. put on the clothes, the boots, and the motorcycle. You, you, you read my mind! You, you just read my I was thinking, like, yes, I was going to pipe in and say, yes, let's let Freddie Prince Jr. play the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> the oh other my thing gosh! Like it. The investment <laughs> wow. guy in me likes it too because I'd like to diversify across various actors and not put all my eggs <laughs> in one basket. Like, think about what a horrible crime it would be if, like, um, like uh, Gene, if Gene Wilder had played Indiana Jones in the first movie and they never made another one. We never would have found out what Harrison Ford could do. Who knows? There isn't somebody else out there who could also do an amazing Indiana Jones. You know, the world is full of possibility. Well, I think that that's a, a point that I wanted to make to Mark a while back is that the, the best sort of example I can think of for this situation uh, in the past is the James Bond franchise. And they yes. took a character and did it over and over with like different directors, different actors, different styles, and some of them have been awful. But you know now we're in a place where the last two have been really good, and I think we all liked them. So Terminator, like it's not a character. It's an idea or maybe a, a sort of a – a basic plot about you know these robots in the future, but it's 
you know, the next five movies might be terrible, but like you're, you're, you could be 45 and see the greatest movie of your life yeah, when, so Jay- you know, Terminator 12 comes out and it kicks total ass. Right. So James Bond movies are always brought up kind of as the, as the, the, the convenient example for a movie franchise that can be rebooted and, you know, it, it sucks for a while, but then it can be brought back. Right. Uh, and you said that, you know, the, the Terminator, you know, there's the, the basic story about the robots in the future. But I would argue that it's not really so basic. In fact, there's a very strong, you know, master, very important narrative about time travel and, you know, the, the savior of mankind and all that kind of stuff, um, which you know, very much distinguishes it from James Bond movies. And that actually makes it uh, difficult to kind of just, you know, oh, let's just scrap all that, you know, just go and do our own thing. Now, there's a, there's a very heavy mythology not to say that James Bond doesn't have a mythology, but the Terminator has it in spades, which makes it very difficult to um, reimagine it. And re- I think this is, with it. this is one place I think where I, I differ a little bit from you, Mark, just because I always thought that Terminator gave you a, a little bit of leeway because the, the core of the first Terminator movie and the second Terminator movie, which are really the only ones that matter, um, is the relationship between the characters and the sort of role of the Terminator in the world. And there's this framing device, but I never thought that, especially in the first Terminator movie, that the most important thing about the movie was the time travel. Yeah, that's, you know a, you, I mean? you, you, that's a really good point there. And, and, um, and I, don't, I don't mean to take away from that character development, which the re- what really made the first two movies, right? James Cameron and how he worked with the character. About. Hold on, hold on, Pete. At what point, going that way, at what point does it cease to be a Terminator movie and just becomes a movie, uh, like a cautionary movie about technology? Well, I think the Terminator Salvation is a great example, but more specifically, I think that the, to be a Terminator movie, there has to be a Terminator, right? Um, and that's sort of, <laughs> there has to be a killer robot, right, that is like relentlessly hunting down uh, uh, somebody now, of course, that's what Terminator means to me, right? It, it, you know, if you look within your heart and you open your heart and you sort of, you know, maybe you play a little song and you like look out at the bluebirds and you appreciate the beauty of life and you open your heart to the possibilities of Terminator, you'll find the Terminator within you too. But for me, right now, uh, when I think about when I think about what Terminator movies are, I feel like at the core of the story there has to be this idea that either that an individual person or maybe a couple of people, is being pursued by a, an overpowered, relentless robot. Um, and, and that, like, that is... And, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a robot. If they made a Terminator movie where it was some sort of biological organism, it would be a huge departure. But I don't feel like it would necessarily be... It would necessarily totally break the frame of Terminator. Like, if they made a bio-robot that wasn't machine at all and it kept regenerating, right? Um, like, I don't necessarily think that would be bad. It, it was art, it'd be, if it was artificial life, you know, it has to be just to... That that's sort of where I draw the line, but like actual mechanics is not really what makes it either. Um, so I mean, Terminator to, Salvation but, is is bad because there's no hunter killer robot that's hunting anybody down to kill anybody, right? right. So, like, so uh, yeah, it's true that it it becomes nonspecific. I guess yeah. is the problem. Mm-hmm. Right, but this is the point here where where you can't really fully you know distill it down to that you know just it's a robot and it chases someone, um, and that's what makes Terminator. Um, this is where the whole time travel thing gets in, and it makes things very messy, and they have to have a justification for the robots to be there. Um, and that's what made, you know, Terminator 3, 3 had all those elements, right? A killer robot from the future travels back in time and chases human beings. Um, but it, you know, well, there were a lot of problems with that movie, but one of them was kind of the justification for them being there and how it fit into the, you know, the, the master narrative of the rest of, of, of the events in the Terminator movies. I'll say Terminator 3 is a bad Terminator movie, but I think it's still a Terminator movie. 
Um, yeah, I mean, um, one, of the, argue yeah one of the reasons why Terminator 3, I, from my perspective and my reading of Terminator, which I think is different from yours, the re- one of the reasons Terminator 3 is bad is that the TX is awful. Um, that the actual Terminator does not... I mean, if you think about it, in Terminator 2... Robert Patrick's Terminator still has this idea of being this relentless force. Um, and they give the TX these cool powers, but I don't think in terms of the visual vocabulary and the narrative vocabulary of the piece, you really ever believe that the TX is like this actual threat, right? It's, it's just kind of bonkers, ridiculous, stupid, crazy. Um, and, I, and against Arnold, for example, like I feel like Arnold has a tougher matchup against the T-1000 than he does against the TX, even though the movie tells us that the TX is much more advanced, right? Um, like I think the biggest problem with Term- well Terminator Three is also a parody. It's it's supposed to be funny. I mean, you remember the part with the star glasses and oh, and, and talk, you know, talk yeah, to the hand, talk to the hand. Like yeah, it's like Terminator Three isn't really taking itself all that seriously, and it's supposed to be kind of the funny one, and, and it doesn't really go all the way towards being funny, and it doesn't really stay serious, and it loses its tone, and the actual Terminator isn't that impressive. I feel like if Terminator 3, if all these other things were true, if it were funny and it were kind of awkward and the story was kind of sucky and the time travel thing didn't make much sense, but the Terminator who was chasing John Connor was actually something that we could see as like what we understand a Terminator to be, like an ender of lives, like a relentless killer robot, um, I think that it would have been saved to an extent. There would have been a Terminator Salvation, which of course didn't take place. Um, right, but then, but then we get back to your your uh, the the other point we were talking about in terms of the relationship of characters, right? You know, yeah. assume that you know whatever the the rope the the enemy is better in Terminator Three, you still have the problem of you know the relation. You don't really care. You don't. You never get to care too much for the relationships. Um, of the characters, you know, John Connor and uh, oh, yeah. Kate, Kate Brewster. Well, that stuff's all that stuff's all nonsense. I mean, you, that stuff should just be cut out of the script just because it's bad movie making. Yeah, it's just it's just dumb. The whole thing about like, oh, they have a couple and you're, they're bickering all the time and you don't know why they like each other and um, they really kind of don't. It's just like it's a bad romance plot. John Connor as a character is very muddily defined. Like they, what do they meet him at an animal? shelter and he's like stealing drugs from an animal <laughs> shelter right, right like yeah. I, I mean that's awful like like what, what kind of guy steals drugs from animal shelter like in, in the wow so you guys I, are going you, you guys are going all skypey on the sound quality i think skynet oh. has gotten uh, has gotten wind <laughs> of our uh, has gotten wind of our podcast. Hey, uh, I think we'll have to leave it there for this week. But do you have anything to say about the uh, the viability of remakes? About whether every Terminator movie is in fact a Terminator movie? About the Terminator ness uh, of movies? About my uh, uh, my vitriolic, but you know, probably somehow ill informed rant uh, against post structuralism? About Latin or Greek etymology? About the best diss track prior to hip hop? about no cake but what we make you know what you should do you should leave a comment on the show notes use the contact form on the site email us at podcast at overthinking or call the voicemail at 20 eat log zero one i still get a kick about of saying that it's 20 eat log zero one two zero three two eight five six four zero one the site where we stuff chocolates down our bra Wait, no, no, that's it. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy! Hi, 
think your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> oh, Ricky! Why did Lucy sound like uh, <laughs> Janet Schechner? Because that's my interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me that there's a meaning. Don't tell me that there's one meaning. <laughs> <clears throat> 